I already once told you the story. The, uh, the founder of Chabad was a Talmud by his Rebbe, by the Mezitcher Magid. So there's a story that they tell that he once overheard two of his friends having a discussion about what they would do if they were Hashem. Interesting hypothesis. What they would do if they were Hashem. And one said that if they were Hashem, they would govern the world with more gvuda, with more toughness, with more strength. And the logic behind that is that if the consequence for one's actions are more direct, people stay in line better. If a person does something wrong and the consequence is more immediate, and conversely, if a person does something right and the reward is instantaneous, so then there's much more incentive on the level of our perception to be good and not to be not good. And the other said that if he were Hashem, he'd be even kinder. Because with enough love, with enough tolerance, as they say in American, we'd all be the way we're supposed to. So the Alter Rebbe overheard the conversation and he interjected that if he were Hashem, he would do exactly as Hashem is doing. Um, this little story, Tzricha Limur, there's a lot that we can learn into the story and also perhaps from the story. Why would people who are not just little children, G'deli Yisrael, suggest that if they were Hashem, they would do things differently, and then one would say like this, another would say like that, and a Makriya, a third one would say, no, I wouldn't do it like this or that, I'd do it exactly as Hashem does it. The simple uh, explanation or insight that can be offered in this, part, in this little episode is as follows. We all know that Hashem governs the world. That's Peshitta. Every Yidu believes in Hashem and believes in Taira and believes in creation and believes in Sinai, believes that Hashem governs the world. Problem is that oftentimes or sometimes it doesn't add up to us. It doesn't make sense to us. We discussed earlier in great length in earlier classes the notion that specifically in the times of Golos versus the times of the base of Mikdash, specifically the first base of Mikdash, the Pasuk says, I see Seinu Leira Inu, Navi, I think that's the Pasuk, something like that. And the, the idea is that Hashem created the world, He created the world for a purpose. One of the critical components of that purpose are Yidin. Like it says in Medrash, Rashi brings it in the beginning of Chumash. That Hashem created the world for Reishis, Beis Reishis. There are two things that Hashem calls Reishis which Hashem created the world, which is Torah. Torah is called Reishis, like, yeah, Reishis loy. And Yidna called Reishis. And it says in the Medrash, B'Reishis bar Elokim. Why did Hashem create the world? He created the world for Reishis, for Yidin. So if Hashem created the world for Yidin, it should at least appear that Yidin are central to the purpose of the creation. And in times of Golos, that Yidna special is not at all apparent. Unless special means suffering a lot, <laughs> then Yidna are not distinct at all. And as a result, though every Yid, Hashem creates the world, and He created the world, and He creates the world every second, and He sustains the world, and He governs the world. When we look at the world, it doesn't seem to reflect entirely the fact that it's Hashem's. And as, I, as it says in Sodom, that the, the, the Lashon HaKadosh word for world, the Hebrew word that connotes a world is Olam. And Olam is the same word as the word Helen. Meaning to say that the 
concept of a world means a place, a domain, a level where Hashem is hidden. In places where Hashem is entirely concealed, you cannot call them a world. You call them something else. But a world connotes an environment, a circumstance, a condition where Hashem creates, created and creates, and He influences and He affects in a constant way. And yet He does it in a camouflage, in a concealment, as a result of which it's difficult to identify the presence of Hashem. So here one person says, if I were God, I would do things differently, meaning to say what? It means that He would govern the world in such a way where we would see Hashem's presence in the world more readily. Either you would see Hashem's presence in the world more readily in terms of Gevura, Gevura doesn't mean meanness, badness. Gevura means emis, honesty. In other words, <laughs> fairness to the, to, to the extreme. If a person is good, then there's reward. If a person is not good, then there's a negative consequence. And there's no margin forever. And the other said, not emis, but chesed. If I govern the world, I'd be more tolerant and more forgiving. Give people whether they deserve it or they don't deserve it. And the idea is that self goes off. In the end, people will come to the truth. So the basis for why somebody would consider that if they would be in that position, they would do it differently is that because what Hashem is doing doesn't come across to us in a very revealed way, we don't necessarily understand what Hashem is doing. And it's, it's very, very important as a person and as a Yid to accept that we don't and we cannot understand Hashem. It's very healthy to recognize that on a lot of levels, not just on levels of religion, push it on psychological and an emotional level. Hashem is a balabos. The world is never out of control. Never, not even for a moment. But we're not meant to understand. We're meant to live our lives according to the Torah that Hashem gave us. So one person says, in a world where I don't see Hashem, if I were Hashem, I would reveal myself more in this form or in another form. And the Alter Rebbe says, no, if I were Hashem, I'd know what Hashem knows. And I do exactly as He does. Like it says in the Rasak, it's brought in Svarim, that Rapsadia Gon writes, that I've spoken this Rasak many times. To be God, to know God, you have to be God, which basically means that nobody can know Hashem. Because the only way to know what the Eidushtad is, to, is to be Hashem. So the Altarebbe says, I have no idea how Hashem operates, but I know that if I did know how He operates, I would operate precisely as He operates. Why am I giving you this introduction? Last week we had a discussion, but I would like to continue this discussion a little bit this week. The discussion that we had last week, to review it as concisely as we can, goes essentially as follows. Yidin left Mitzrayim, they come into the Midbar, and we see them repeatedly protesting what's going on. There are a lot of things they can't understand, they can't make sense out of. And every time something doesn't make sense to them, they make a Vayulenu. Or Vayarivu, uh, the various Lashenus in the Pasek, they protest, they rise up. And as it says in the Pasek, they did it ten times. And then for 40 years, the way we phrased it last week, there seems to be a period of calm. Nothing unusual is happening, it's uneventful. The proof is that Torah doesn't mention anything that happened in the interim 38 years or approximately. And the Torah picks up the, the story of Eden and the Midbar in the 40th year. Last week we went from the beginning of the 40 years to the end of the 40 years with a little space in the Chumash. And all of a sudden, Yidin are complaining all over again. And again, there's repeated protests. I mean, you look at the Mepharshim and Rashi and the Chazal. There were some very serious things that occurred during the last year that Yidin were in the Midbar. I mean, for example, just to name one, which is 
it, it's really awesome. You just don't pay attention. Aaron Akoyan passed away. And the uh, Anani Akkovid were removed. And the Yidin felt vulnerable to Goyim. So they started to go back to Mitzrayim. And they ran backwards. They traveled backwards towards Mitzrayim. The equivalent of what had been eight journeys. And Levi ran after them, and Ashi says. And there was a civil war amongst Klai Yisrael. And seven entire families from Yisrael were lost. And four entire families from Levi were lost. It's, it's an, uh, an amazing event. It's an awesome event. It's not a very favorable event. And Rashi mentions it. He mentions it in this week's Parshim, Parshas Pinchas, when he's counting the Eden. But it's an event that's related to last week. No, I'm sorry. He mentioned it. Rashi mentioned it last week also, but it, 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 it's indicated in the Pasha this week. And there are numerous other events that occurred during the last year from the passing of Miriam and Aaron until you didn't go and get to throw with the protesting all over again. And the observation that we made was why all of a sudden, at the beginning, the Jewish nation is born. We understand why they have difficulty adapting to the Ratzon of Hashem. So they protest. And there's a consequence, and they protest again, and there's another consequence, until you didn't figure out the program. The program is to be a Yid, the approach is Nasev and Ishma. The approach is first you have to accept, then you can try and understand. And the understanding has to be within the framework of acceptance. In other words, since it's Hashem's doing, it is good. I have to figure out how it's good. Not I have to evaluate whether it's good or not. And the list, you know, the particulars of this you can determine for yourself. So why after 40 years are they suddenly rising up again and it didn't happen once, it happened numerous times? And the answer is, as we discussed it last week, and as I mentioned, nobody objected to what I said, <laughs> not a second chance, um, that now a significant change is taking place in the direction of Klai Yisrael. They're being transferred from a nation of people who live in clouds and eat angel food, Lecham Abidim, to a nation that has to go into Israel and first of all fight many wars and the reward for their victories would be that they will all have the glorious distinction of agriculturalists which is a fancy way of saying farmers um, nobody can say that a farmer is as close to God as a person living in a cloud and eating mun and drinking water and having their clothing artificially preserved and, and freshened and so on and so forth it's a different life so as this transition takes place Israel has to adapt to a new situation. When you have to adapt to a new situation, there's a new struggle. And the Torah teaches us, it tells us these stories, as I mentioned last week, not just to tell us things that are not favorable about Kla Yisrael, but for the purpose of teaching us the notion that when you make changes in life, or when life imposes changes upon you, it's a time of great vulnerability. It's a dangerous time spiritually. We have a tendency to fall when things are not stable. But it's also a time of great possibility for growth. People make their greatest steps forward in times of change. And people who are at their greatest risk in times of change. And the Torah constantly teaches us about the changes that Klai Yisrael went through. And the mistakes that they made so that we shouldn't make the same mistakes. And we connected and we discussed last week the example that we illustrated was the Chet of Moshe and Aaron in hitting the rock. I don't know if you remember. And the point that we brought out is that Moshe Rabbeinu came to the rock and he was told by Hashem to speak to the rock and he noticed a change from the first time. Remember, 40 years before approximately, Hashem had also told Moshe Rabbeinu to go to a rock and hit it. 
Now Moshe Rabbeinu is back a second time, but there's a very basic difference between what he experienced first time around and what he's experiencing now. And that was the first time around when Moshe came to the rock, so did Hashem. With the rock, Moshe Rabbeinu experienced the presence of Hashem. The second time around, Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the rock and there is no presence of Hashem. And as a result, Moshe Rabbeinu hit the rock twice, and this was a mistake. And if you remember, the discussion that we had last week went essentially as follows. Why didn't the presence of Hashem come the second time? Was it true that Hashem was angry? No. So why was there no presence of Hashem second time around and the first time around there was? And the answer that we gave was this. The notion that there is a rock and in addition to the rock, there is the presence of Hashem. Meaning to say that there are two separate things. There's the rock and there's Hashem's presence. It's superficial. Superficial means it's not the deepest truth about the connectedness, about the unity between Hashem and the world. When a person understands Achtos Hashem, understands the oneness there is between Hashem and the world, they discover Hashem doesn't have to come and stand over the rock because the rock and Hashem are one and the same. At the beginning of the 40 years, when the new Jewish nation was first born, Hashem says to Moshe, I'm going to stand next to you by the rock. Meaning to say what? The rock, Lachud, the stone is an entity unto itself, and the presence of Hashem is an entity unto itself. Meaning to say, Hashem is allowing Yidin to relate to the world as their being. The world, and then there is Hashem's presence, and Hashem's presence on the world. 40 years later, Hashem is challenging Yidin in a different way. He's not coming to the rock. So go speak to the rock. Where are you? I'm the rock just like I'm everything else. And this was the basis for Moshe Rabbeinu's kriyachal, his, his misjudgment. And it resulted in Moshe Rabbeinu not going into Eretz Yisrael. In short, and in other words, the difference between living in the Midbar and living in Eretz Yisrael is, in the Midbar, the Jewish nation knew Hashem. How? He was showering them with miracles. Repeatedly, again and again, there are miracles taking place. In Eretz Yisrael, it's a different world. Come into Eretz Yisrael, you want to eat? You have to be a farmer. And being a farmer, I've never been a farmer. <laughs> Don't know any farmers personally. There's something very beautiful about being a farmer. And also very Yiddish about being a farmer. I'll just, I'll tell you, my man, was good. Just to add a little, something lighter to this. In, in the beginning of the 19th century, 1812 approximately, there was a war in Europe where Napoleon, whose name is probably familiar to you, tried to conquer the world essentially. He wasn't the first person, he's not the last person. And um, he wreaked havoc on white Russia, on Eastern Europe. He was defeated by the Russians, and he destroyed a lot of, 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 of where Jewish people lived in, 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 uh, in Belarusia, in white Russia. And after that war, the Yidin were very, very, very poor. So the Mittler Rebbe, the second Chabad Rebbe, bought, or arranged with the government for a sale, a tremendous, tremendous plot of land in a faraway place in Kherson, which is in the Ukraine, and he settled a couple of thousand families of Yidin on these farms, and he gave them us. But there were two prices that they needed to pay for this. The first price was that they had to be far away from the Rebbe, and the second price is they had to become farmers. And there's a letter from the Rebbe, middle of the Rebbe, where some chassid wrote to the Rebbe, a Yid, a farmer? And the Rebbe gives it to him. He says, if it was good for you, Zayde, who came out of the midbar and went into the soil to be a farmer, it's good for you also. But in any event, there's a little uh, remark that was made by the Mittal Rebbe to his son-in-law, where he was, he was sitting in his room and he says to him, are you just envisioning 
You know, out there in the fields, the sun is baking down, and Ayyid with Abod and Peis standing out over the open sky, and his Dalek Confess, his Tzitzis, are floating around in the wind, and he's standing behind his plow to keep it going in the right direction. And wherever he looks, all he sees is, Wherever he looks, he sees Hashem. This is Hashem's world. In, in the Tava, in nature, far away from the city, it's, it's, it, you're not close to Hashem, it's a fact. I mean, this is the, te- the, the Teva of Hegel ibn Ayyadim. But in any event, so Yidin were meant to be farmers. And the Avodas Hashem challenge of being a farmer was what? No more miracles. Not getting food from the heaven and water from a rock and clothing from clouds. Everything you want, you have to earn. Instead, you have to learn how to find Hashem in the world itself. Instead, you have to learn that Hashem's presence in the world doesn't mean He's doing a miracle. When the world takes its course, when you get up in the morning and you go out and milk your cows and feed your animals before you feed yourself, there's nothing supernatural about that, but you're fulfilling a mitzvah. And then at the end of the season, Hashem gives you a crop. There's a miracle in that. And the whole idea of going from the midbar, from living in a cloud, to living in the Yisrael, was Hashem telling the Jewish people, okay, Hashem's presence in the world doesn't have to be represented by something higher. Hashem's presence in the world is the world itself. And if a Yid does what Hashem wants, in the Dark Yatev, and the limitations of the world, he sees Hashem in his or her life. This is essentially the transition from being in the Midbar to being in Yisrael. So the Jews complain. They can't relate to this. They can't relate to this notion that Hashem's presence is the world itself. Hashem's presence is not a miracle, it's not something transcendent, it's not something higher, and so on. Now, this is an, a review of last week's class. Maybe we added some clarity to it. But this is essentially what we discussed last week. What I want to talk about this week is a continuation of last week's discussion. And that is, we find a very interesting thing in Chumash, and in Chazal, and I want to use this Indian as a way of illustrating the same point we made before. In our Pasha, Pasha's Pinchas, there are a number of discussions. One of the discussions involves the distribution of Eretz Yisrael, giving out the plots of land in Eretz Yisrael. How was the land divided up? How was the land divided? How was it determined who gets which piece of the land? Now you can understand yourself when a nation million strong, especially Jews, come into something and you have to divide it up. There's plenty of room for them to argue and to have differences of opinion. Of course, everyone's interested in the truth, but the truth as they see it. Um, and it says back in certain mafarshim, this is why Hashem made it apiyah goyro. It was done basis, on the basis of a lottery. Can't complain. This is the way it worked out. But if you look in the Chumash, and like I said, we're going to learn it the way Rashi teaches it, there's different Mepharshim on it, you find something very interesting and odd, strange, about the division of the land. And again, I'm telling you what the Rashi says. There were three different bases for how Yisrael was divided. Three different things that had to take place to divide the Yisrael. Number one, Moshe Rabbeinu appointed a group of people whose names I mentioned in Pasha's Masse, next week's Pasha. And he said to them that you, together with Yeshua and a few others, and the Lazarakayan, should sit down and divvy up, chop up at soul into twelve parts, and each shave it, each tribe should get its section. And then the Batayovis, the members of that tribe, would subdivide their section into their families. So they would sit down, did all these people, they would go through Israel, they would calculate how many people there were in each shave it. 
they would calculate the quality of the land that it's is a tiny little place but one of the most remarkable things about Eretz Yisrael is in that tiny little place you have every kind of topography you can imagine you have desert and rainforest and everything in between I mean Eretz Yisrael is it is a remarkable place I mean B'dera Chateva any person who Israel sees there's no place in the world in such a small area to have such diverse um, possible landscapes like you have in Eretz Yisrael does not exist any place else in the world and Eretz Yisrael was divided it was divided based on Uchluthia how many members there were in each Shevet and it was divided based on the quality of the land that means to say if you've got a very fertile land very lush land land that was very farmable if you will you got a smaller piece Ferashi says if you got more desert like Yehuda and Shimon you got bigger area much bigger area but the land wasn't very useful for agriculture because it was desert and that's how Etesol was divided what does Cheshben mean? people used their minds and determined how to split up Etesol in what seemed to them to be reasonable the way any two people or twelve people as it were would negotiate any division if there are twelve partners in a business and they want to break up the business so they negotiate terms and they decide who gets what piece they're equal but different, not the same and Yisrael was divided in a very similar fashion they sat down and they calculated the value of each base court, each area of land and on that basis they divided up Eretz Yisrael okay, that makes sense, right? but that's not the end of the story, this is just the beginning of the story that divided up Eretz Yisrael reasonably they took the names of each of the twelve Shvatim and put them into a hat then they took the twelve plots twelve divisions areas of Eretz Yisrael that had already been divided and put them into another hat now understand they've already decided which land Shimon is going to get and which land Yehuda is going to get and which land Benjamin is going to get and which land Don is going to get which land Ephraim is going to get and which land Menashe is going to get that's going from south to north it was all determined and now they, they threw it into a girdle and subjected it to random, to chance. And then this happened. Whatever they had determined ahead of time, who would get what piece of land, that's what came out of the hat. If Shevet Shimon was pulled out, and the truth is, Shevet Shimon says that actually they got Peteh, but the Shevet Shimon got the Negev, the south of Israel, which is a desert. So then the Negev would come up with Shevet Yehuda, so then the area that had already been determined to belong to Yehuda, would turn up. If you pulled out Naphtali, so then you got an area in the north of Israel. If you pulled out Zvulun, you got an area along the northern coast of Israel, and so on. If you don't know what the division of Israel, you can take out Faith of Yeshua. It's written there in, in enormous detail. First they divided up the land reasonably and then they put it into a girdle. Not finished. As they were pulling the two names from the hat, there's different days about this. The girdle, let me just say, the very, very uh, pots in which the names were sitting would call out this area for this shavit. In other words, a miracle would happen. As they were pulling the names and the designated areas out of a hat, simultaneously the girdle itself would announce this shavit is going to get this piece of land. And in addition to all of that, there was also the Urim Betumim, Pinchas, was standing with the Chesh and Mishpat on his chest, and it would also indicate what shavit is going to come up and what land they're going to get. Now, in other words, to make a long story short, Etisrael was divided up three times simultaneously. And all three divisions worked out to be the same. Three times Etisrael was divided up, and each time, Yehuda got the same piece, and Shimon got the same piece, and Benjamin got the same piece, and Ephraim got the same piece, and Menashe got the same piece, and so on. It was divided up re- reasonably, 
it was divided up it was divided up based on total random and chance and it was divided up now what kind of game is this? like I said there's different different opinions this is Rashi's opinion what's the idea? what's the chap? What's the significance of dividing up the... What would happen if Chas Veshalom, the Cheshbenis, wouldn't shtim? If one time Shimon would get one piece and then in a different Cheshbenis would get something else, they'd have what to fight about, right? It didn't happen. Each time a determination was made about who gets which piece of land that turned out to be the same. But why? Why did Hashem tell Yidin to make the same Chalukah three different times? Apiseichel, apigoidel, apiruach hakodesh. And perhaps the answer to the question, not perhaps, this is the says in Svarim actually, is the same point that we're making until now. And, and I'll put it to you in these words. There's three levels on which Hashem connects to the world. And this is, this is just for this immediate discussion. You can come up with as many as you want. There's a level where Hashem connects to the world that's called Gaidal. What does Gaidal mean? When you think of Gaidal, what do you think of? You think of Purim. Huh? What did you say? That's a translation. But what does it remind you of in terms of Taylor? Reminds you of Purim and Yom Kippur also there was a girdle. Purim means a lottery. And as we discussed Purim time, or we should have discussed Purim time, the whole miracle of Purim was that Klai Yisrael were thrown to chance. The miracle of Purim is what? That on a level which is called girdle, random. Random means to say things are entirely not based on any on any reasonable uh, basis, Kali Yisrael came out victorious, vindicated. Haman threw a goidel, hoping to be able to destroy the Jewish nation. And the chance itself, random, pure random, turned out to be favorable, and Haman was hung, and Kali Yisrael was spared. That's considered a very great miracle. Hashem, the, the highest level of the relationship between Hashem and the world is called goidel. Now what does it mean? Goidel means that things are happening that don't make any sense at all. When something doesn't make sense, what does it mean? I mean let's make a lahavdal over here. When a human being does something that doesn't make sense, what do we call that? Crazy. Stupid or crazy, right? <laughs> when Hashem does something that doesn't make sense, lahavdal it means that Hashem is not bothering to descend to a level where we should be able to understand Him. Hashem is not seichel, Hashem is not reason, Hashem is the truth. The truth has no definition other than it's, it's unchanging and it's eternal and it's the truth. The Hashem's truth doesn't make sense, doesn't have to make sense. We have to make sense out of things because we're creations of sense. We cre- Hashem created us in such a way that the deepest ability to assess the reality that we have is one of seichel. The highest human faculty is reason. So we look at the world and we want to appreciate it best, we have to use reason. Hashem created reason like He created us. And He's not governed or, may, or, 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 or limited by those parameters. So Goyal is like Hashem is relating to the world. You know how? Exactly as He wants to. Like the story about the Rebbe. If I were Hashem, I'd do exactly as Hashem does. It doesn't have to make sense because Hashem doesn't make sense. He's inherently not within the limitations of reason. That's one level, so to speak, of Hashem's relationship with the world. And by the way, while we're talking about this, let me just share this incidentally. Um, we all believe in Ashkoch Pratis, right? One of the things that's brought about Ashkoch Pratis is this. Ashkoch Pratis means that everything that happens, Hashem does. Ashkoch Pratis means even more. Everything that happens is necessary. 
if something would happen to the world a little bit different than it's meant to be, it would upset the whole balance of the whole creation. But another thing that's brought about Ashgach is, is that there are things in Hashem's creation that cannot be understood. Hashem has what we call a reason, because we don't have any other words, but we can't understand it. And it's not, not only we can't understand it because we're not smart enough, but because it doesn't fit into the realm of smarts. Reason does not tolerate everything about Hashem's creation. Hashem is Lamailam and Hashem. He's higher than reason. There are little bits and pieces about what's going on that we think we can make sense out of. And with the help of Tayyip, we can in fact make sense out of it. Nobody can possibly understand everything. Why not? Because it doesn't all make sense. It's all with a purpose. It's all with a direction. But not a reasonable purpose. A super reasonable purpose which is higher than reason. That's called Goyal. And there's a second level where Hashem relates to the world. What's the second level? Hashem gave us His Torah. What is Torah? Torah is Hashem's. Torah is not ours, it's His. It's not man-made, it's divine. And if I may insert this here, even though it's not part of our discussion, Torah is also from Hashem. When the Chachamim sat down and studied Torah and determined Allah, whatever it is, it's not because they were so smart that we do what Beis Hillel said or what Beis Shammai said or whatever it is, Rav said and Abayah said. We do what they told us to do because we believe that Hashem inspired them, that they had the Ruach HaKadosh. And that when Abayah says what Abayah says, Hashem is speaking. And when Rav says what Rav said or the Ramah and so on. I heard once that there was a Yid who used to learn Torah out loud and he would translate everything into Yiddish. And when he would say, Omar Abayah, which literally means Abayah, Abayah is a rabbi, the Gemara would say, he would say, Omar Abayah Hashem said, Omar Abayah Hashem said, Beishil Leimim Hashem said, Beisham Yim Hashem said, because that's the truth. That's why Torah is holy. That's why Torah is timeless. That's why we, that's why Torah is true for us and forever. Torah is Hashem's. But Torah is what we call Chochmah, say Shalakadosh Baruch means Hashem took himself, so to speak, and he packaged himself within the limitations and the framework of Chochmah, of reason and wisdom. Hashem, within the system of the Torah, things make sense. Things are reasonable, things are logical. Which means to say, when a Yid learns Torah, he can understand, understand Hashem's Torah, and to whatever extent, even Karachal, understand Hashem himself. So Hashem, in His essence, is a goidel. How He operates and what He does doesn't make any sense at all. The second level is the, the way Hashem can be understood by learning Torah. Can you understand everything? Of course not. And Bechlal, it's important to, you know, to state what everybody knows already. In Yiddishkeit, we never were in the business of understanding Hashem. We were always in the business of believing in Hashem. Even when we learn about Hashem, we're not saying that now that I understand Hashem, I believe in Hashem. No, no, no. I believe in Hashem, period. I'm supposed to understand Hashem because it's a mitzvah, the Adaita or Shema to understand. But nobody, no place in Yiddishkeit is understanding Hashem a basis for being a Yid. It's, it's, not, it's not a healthy Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit is based on Emunah. But whatever the case is, in the Torah, Hashem communicates to us things in a reasonable way. I'll give you an example. V'chaibahem, that the Torah says that mitzvahs are supposed to give you life, not heb chachayim. A Jew is not allowed to give his life for most mitzvahs. Why not? Because our Pisecha, reasonably, you're supposed to want to live. And therefore, Torah says, you're supposed to live. Kehem chayeno, Torah is supposed to give you life, and not chas v'sham, the opposite of life. It's a whole different way of relating to Hashem, or Hashem relating to us. Hashem relating to us on a level of Gretel is what? Hashem operates and nothing, it doesn't make any sense. Not Chas that it's senseless, it's higher than sense. 
on the second level of the way Hashem so to speak contains himself within the framework of the reasonable Torah where we're able to understand that's what Torah is it's a medium to which we can understand and understand the wisdom of Hashem and when it comes to Torah you can talk and say Chesed Hamasig there are things we don't understand if we'd be smarter we'd understand them when it comes to Hashem Himself, it's not a matter of getting smarter. As smart as you'll be, you'll be as distant from Hashem. There's no such thing as, as relativity, as proportional distance. Hashem doesn't make sense. The smartest person is as, un, is as distant from understanding Hashem that doesn't make sense as the simplest person. When it comes to Torah, since Torah is Chochmosei, the wisdom of Hashem, you'll be smarter, you'll understand more. That's a second level. And what's the third level? The third level is what people think they understand, or people <laughs> understand. Human beings have minds and they use them, sometimes for good, sometimes not for so good. And with our minds, we understand, we live our lives, we see what's going on, and sometimes we say, aha, this is why Hashem did this. This is, what the, this is called a sensitivity, you live your life, you look around the world, and you find Hashem. You find Hashem in the form of a miracle. You find Hashem in what the world calls an amazing coincidence, something unusually precise, unpredictable occurs. You say, wow, that's finding Hashem in the world. That's a determination that a human being makes. So there are these three levels. There's a level where Hashem doesn't make any sense at all. We call that Gaidel. There's a level where Hashem makes sense within the framework of Torah. And there's the sense that people make out of Hashem because they have minds. So when Eretz Yisrael was divided, Hashem says, you divide Eretz Yisrael up three different times, three different ways. Eretz Yisrael was divided on the level of a girdle, a lottery, which is completely chance. Eretz Yisrael was divided up based on the Ruach HaKadosh, the divine spirit of Hashem. And Eretz Yisrael was divided up by 12 or 14 people sitting down and negotiating as any people would negotiate any business division and come to a conclusion that was satisfactory to all. Those are three different realms altogether. Everybody understands that when Hashem does things, we can't understand. Hashem divides the better slope. Does it have to make sense that Shimon got the desert and Naftali got a lush piece of, 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 of farmland in the north? Does it make sense that Reuben and God got massive areas of land in the east of Betis Hashem does things up here going. But when 12 people sit down and use their own chokhmah, their intellect, their wisdom, and decide that it's fair, that Shimon should get the desert, but a big piece of desert, and Aftali should get very lush, very fertile land, but a smaller piece, that sounds reasonable and fair. So here's what happened. And Tisar was divided up on three different levels. And they all came to the exact same conclusions. The Gretel said that this Shevet gets this piece of land. Ruach said that this Shevet gets this piece of land. And human beings decided that this Shevet should get this piece of land. What's so significant about that? What's so significant about that? What's significant about that is this is a case where the idea that La Hashem ha'odet some lawyer, that the world is Hashem's and the world is Hashem, was clear not only on holy levels, but even on levels that are down to earth. In other words, in the Midbar, how did Hashem appear? How did a Jew know that he's seeing Hashem? He saw all kinds of glorious miracles. Now he goes to that to throw, now he's a farmer. The miracles, if they're happening, are concealed. Nesnista, Malubish Bateva. They don't see the hand of Hashem in the most direct way. What is the Avaidah of Yid? What does Hashem want out of us as people? 
Hashem wants that ultimately these three levels should all be on the same page. That what Hashem wants on a level of Gaidal, and what Hashem wants on a level of Ruch HaKadosh, and what we think is good should all be the same. What a human being understands is right, should be consistent with what Hashem understands is right, and even this that Hashem wants on a level which is higher than understanding, on a level of Gaidal. And Tisov was divided three times because in this division we all saw, Yidin all saw that what Hashem wants and what Hashem understands and what we understand can all be one and the same. Let me give you an Avodas Hashem illustration which will make this a little bit easier. What's the idea of Nasev and Ishma? What's the idea of Nasev and Ishma? The basic idea of Nasev and Ishma. Nasa means I have to accept the Ratznalian, I have to accept what Hashem wants. What does Nishma mean? I have to understand. But what do I have to understand? I have to understand what Hashem wants is right. <coughs> Not I have to understand and say, well, in this case, Hashem wants this, I don't understand. That's not Nasa Vinishma, that's plain Nasa. Nasa Vinishma means that after I have a Muna, and after I accept, it has to, so to speak, feel right in my life, in my day-to-day life, what the Einishter wants and what I want should be one and the same thing. In the language of Hasidus, this is called Pnimius. To bring Hashem in an internal way. But Pnimius, what does it mean? I don't only accept Hashem. In addition to accepting Hashem, I also internalize Him. And it's represented perfectly by the way that the soul was divided. What Hashem wants and what people decided turned out to be the same thing. What does it prove? It proves that a person living in this world, as a farmer, not as a day-to-day learning tater eating mud and mayim from Beit media. What they understand could be exactly consistent with what Hashem wants. But of course, the way to live that kind of life, you have to follow Taylor Mitzvahs. And just to talk about it, in light of Eretz Yisrael, being a farmer in Eretz Yisrael was a challenge. I mean, first of all, those Shvatim who got the desert had a harder job, right? It wasn't so much fun. I mean, today we live in a world where real estate is very, very important. <laughs> so maybe, it says, by the way, Mashiach comes, there's going to be a redistribution of Eretz Yisrael. It's going to be divided up into 13 Chalakim. And Levi is going to get a piece. So it's a whole different situation. Whatever the case is, is now real estate there are a lot more real estate so who knows um, um, but whatever the case is it's more difficult if you're Shevet Shimon or by the way Shevet Shimon was very poor that's she says in Chumash they were very poor and <laughs> the reason they were poor is Hashem wanted to keep them busy so they shouldn't make any trouble because they had a history of being troublemakers that's what that she says um, but, but they were poor because the land they lived on was not very useful as farmland I mean you want to tell me a different shot you're welcome but they were they were, they were, they were, they were, they were travel around asking people for handouts because they were very poor and part of the reason for their poverty was the land that they were given was a desert so if you're Shevet Shimon and this is what Hashem wants it has to also be what you want it's not so simple to say okay Hashem made a lottery and we got the British we got the, the lowest area of land so we're stuck with it that's, that's fine right but the Gredel wasn't enough there were three divisions in Eretz Yisrael. We have to not only accept that, so it has to make sense to us that we have to get a piece of desert. Exactly how it made sense to Shimon, I don't know. I'm hoping I'm not from Shevet Shimon. <laughs> most of us are from Shevet Yehuda and Benyamin, as you probably all know. Even though in the Gemara there's different days, uh, but in the Shot, there's a day in the Gemara that people don't talk about that. The Aseret came back. Do you know that? 
the day in the Gemara that the ten tribes after they were taken away were actually brought back. So then there's a whole idea of uh, of Okay, but in this is a Mamela Muslim. In other words, the parenthesis. The point is talking about Nasev and Ishma. Accepting is one thing. But that after I accept what I've accepted eventually makes sense to me is a much deeper union. And that's what Yiddishkeit in Eretz Yisrael is about. In the Midbar, it's easy to accept. You know why? Because it all makes sense. Wherever you turn, you have a miracle. In Eretz Yisrael, it's not that way. And it's a very special process of changing from living in the Midbar to living in Eretz Yisrael and being an agriculturalist or a farmer. And when Hashem does what He does, whether it's Apiyah Apiro it's our, I agree with it. It makes sense to us. It's, 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 it's the deepest way that you serves Hashem. In other words, that you first accept, that's the premise, but that we also have to understand and appreciate what Hashem wants. Now, in conclusion, I want to mention what follows in the Pasha. Right after the Torah tells us how Moshe gave the instructions about dividing up Eretz Yisrael, Right? What does it say? In other words, on the level of lottery, based on the Ruach HaKadosh, the divine inspiration of Hashem, and uh, based on human decision, we have the, the stepping forward of the daughters of Tzlovchad. But the daughters of Tzlovchad complained that we, we don't want to lose our, por- our father's portion of the land. They had no brothers. And this is the first women liberated, and they actually got what they wanted from Hashem. Um, they said... Why should we lose out? And as Zashi explains the particulars of it, and they got what they wanted to talk about. They were given a piece of Etisrael, and later on, the people of their Shevet were complaining that they're going to marry into a different tribe, and then it's going to be lost, and they were encouraged to marry members of their own tribe. That's not what I want to talk about. Two points I want to mention. First of all, the B'nai Tzlovchad made a very, very strong point of saying, Avinu Meis Bamidbar, our father died in the desert. It says Rashi, Avinu Meis Bamidbar, but Vahu lo Yehoya Ba'adas Kairach. He wasn't a member of the uprising of Kairach or the other people who made uprisings against Hashem. Ki Bechete Meis. He died from his own personal sin. Uvanin lo Hayuloi, he had no sons, and therefore Allah Menigara. So the daughters of Tzlochah step forward, and they don't simply say, our father died without sons. They say, our father died from his own sin, but it wasn't the sin of so-and-so. This is all very, very precise. By, you see, if, if they come forward, it says in some of the Mepharshim, that if they would come forward and say, our father died in the desert, Moshe Rebbein would think they must have been members of Kedach's uprising. And Moshe had a grudge. It was with Moshe with whom they had started up. And therefore they said, no, no, we, our father didn't die from anything that has to do with you, or with Klai Yisrael, or like the Lushman's book, that they were, he was not a chayti or machti, he didn't make other sin, he had his own personal sin. And he died because of his own personal sin, we want that to be up front, on the table, but we don't think that that's sufficient reason to lose a chedek in that The insight is as follows. Had been a member of the uprising of the Meraglim or of Kairach, of all the uprisings found earlier in Chumash, the essence of all those uprisings was a lack of will to go into Yisrael. The Jews didn't want to go into Yisrael, like the story of the Meraglim, and in a different way also Kairach. They didn't want to go into Yisrael. And you know why they want to go into Yisrael? Because they made a determination. You can't be a Jew in Yisrael. And the Rosh of the Pasuk, Eretz Echeles Yeshua, Eretz Yisrael eats up its inhabitants. Why can't you be a Jew in Eretz Yisrael? Then 
you live in an artificial world. Where Hashem gives you what He gives you, miraculously, you can be a Jew. But to be a Yid and a farmer, it can't happen. It's going to eat us up. The Darkia Teva, the reality of nature that's going to, so to speak, appear so real to us, is going to make it so that we're not going to be able to remember Hashem. So they said, we can be Jews in an artificial world. In the Midbar, we can't be Yidin in Israel. So the door of the Prophet will pick the point out, my father wasn't from that group. My father loved Eretz Yisrael. And he wanted to go into Eretz Yisrael. And this is why they're coming forward and saying, we want a chaylik in Eretz Yisrael. If our father had been one of those who said, we can't be Jews in Israel, then maybe we should lose our portion. So they pointed out, he died from sin, but it wasn't those sins. It wasn't those people who didn't believe that he could be a Yid in, a, in so-called real world, in, in Eretz Yisrael. What was the Aved at Slavchot? So the Gemara Rashi brings two opinions. One opinion was that he was the Mekreshish. You know the story of the Mekreshish? It's a Chumash Vayikra. That the first Shabbos, which was before Mount Teda, before the Teda was given, that the Jewish people were meant to keep, I'm sorry, the second Shabbos, Slavchot chopped wood. They collected wood. And he wasn't allowed to do it. It was a Malacha. And he was killed for it. So he died before anybody was protesting going into Israel. But the second opinion is even more interesting, that he was from the Ma'apilim. Who were the Ma'apilim? After the story of the Miraglim, after the story of the spies, when the Jewish people had indicated that um, we can't go into Israel. So Hashem said to them, you don't want to go into Israel? You won't go into Israel. What's up, your children? So there were a group of Yidin who said, no, we want to go. Moshe said, don't go. Hashem is not with you. And they went anyway and they got killed. It's in Pasha's Shlach. That after the whole story of the Menagrim had finished, and Klaisol was told that, no, they're not going to get to There were a group of diehards who said, we want to go anyway. And they went to war and they got killed. And there was an opinion that Slavchad was Minam Apilim. What does that mean? Slavchad died. Why? Hashem and Moshe say don't go into Eretz Yisrael and he was so desperate to go into Eretz Yisrael that he defied Hashem and Moshe it's called an Aveda don't misunderstand in his deep desire to go in and live in Eretz Yisrael so Tzlovchah's daughter said listen he was a bad guy I don't know if you want to call it, use those words he did an Aveda he paid for his Aveda but he loved Eretz Yisrael but what does that mean in light of today's discussion loving Eretz Yisrael means Tzlovchah understood that you could be a Yid in the real world. You could be a Yid when you don't see miracles and all kinds of supernatural, very deep things happening, very unusual things occurring. You can be a Yid in the everyday life of a Jew who's a farmer and agriculturist living in, in the real world. I just want to conclude with a, a, a little drush. In other words, I don't have a source for what I'm going to tell you. You'll either agree or disagree. If you look at Rashi, it's pointed out that the names of the daughters of Slochad are repeated in the Chumash three times. And one of those three times, the, na- the, the names are arranged in a different order. And Rashi says the reason their names are arranged in different orders is because there are different things about the daughters of Slochad that are being communicated. Number one, the order of their age from oldest to youngest. Number two, the order of their intelligence from wisest to simplest. And number three, that they were all equal. Shakur and Shavan, they were all exactly the same. 
So the drush with which we're going to conclude today's class is that these three correspond to the three things we were talking about before. The idea that they're all equal, the idea that all Yidna are equal, is a level of a Jewish neshama that's called Gaidel. The idea that some of us are greater and others of us are greater based on our age. There's not a greater and less great, but that's determined by Hashem. And the idea that one is smarter and one is less smart, that's already, that has to do with ourselves. And the Torah is teaching us that at all three levels of the daughters of Tzlovchad, and the level where they're all the same, and the level where there was higher and lower than Hashem determined, and the level of higher and lower that they determined on all three levels, they love their Yisrael and they had Mesir's Nefesh for Yisrael. Now just to conclude, I want to say this differently. And maybe this will sort of speak, make it a little bit more meaningful on a practical level. It's going to sound funny what I'm going to say, but it's true. We all know that the basis for Yiddishkeit is Amunah. To believe. You have to believe in Hashem. You have to believe in Moshe Rabbein. You have to believe in the Torah. You have to believe in Tzachar You have to believe in, uh, in, in free will and in consequence and so on and so forth. But you know what else you have to believe in? You have to believe in a Yid. You have to believe that inside each Yid, including me, <laughs> there is a holiness, there is a Kayach allows for me, even in the difficult circumstances, to do what Hashem wants. The Yidin who didn't want to go into Eretz Yisrael had a lack of Amunah. A lack of Amunah in Hashem, a lack of Amunah in Moshe Rabbeinu. But the real lack of Amunah they had was in themselves. They didn't believe that a person like them could fulfill the Ratzna Hashem under those conditions. And they underestimated the Koyach of a Yiddish and a Shammah. And this is a very important thing to understand, both when we lay to ourselves, this is not meant to make us feel haughty or conceited or pompous, because it's not, it will only obligate you. But when you approach another Yid, and especially to give an example which people in this room can relate to very directly, your own children. One of the areas of, of challenge is to trust they also have a power to give Hashem Nachas. And that belief itself, knowing that there is this godly Koyach in them, and that belief itself is the greatest encouragement that that holiness should be materialized, it should be realized, it should come to the surface. There's a word from the Baal Shem Tev. The Baal Shem Tev says, it says in the Pasuk, which means that Klai Yisrael is compared to an Eretz Chefetz, to a desired land. So the Enoch of Hashem said that just like people will never know all of the treasures that there are in the earth, so too it can never be known all of the treasures there are inside a Yid. Inside a Yid. And knowing that a Yid has all these treasures is what's necessary to believe you can go into Eretz Yisrael and be a Jew. And Slavchad had this Amona, and even though he had passed away 40 years before, and his daughters were still unmarried, right, because later on in the Chumash they married their relatives, um, they, they, he transmitted that Amona to them. They also appreciated that in Eretz Yisrael you could be a Yid, and that's why they, they wanted, they were desperate for a shtika of